chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one there in front of you. Little black Bibles in the pew back. We're going to be on page 981 in that pew Bible. By the way, I realized like two weeks ago that for two months I've been giving you the wrong page number and none of you ever told me. So thanks a lot for that, guys. Uh, 981, not 982. Page 981. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 3. We believe that the Bible is God's word. So we open it up and we read it and then we talk about it. And we believe God works through his word rightly proclaimed. So this word that we're going to read is God speaking to us about who he is and about what he wants from his people. This is our third week now in the first three verses of chapter 3. Maybe we'll just go one verse at a time from here on out and finish Philippians in 42 weeks. I won't do that to you, but I could because there's so much good stuff here in the book of Philippians. It's a wonderful book. Uh, my friend Harry Fujiwara, who some of you know, has preached here a few times. He's the former associate pastor at North Shore Baptist Church. Uh, he is starting in two weeks from today on the 15th as the new head pastor of First Baptist Church in Manhattan. And we were meeting and talking about, you know, I kind of started doing some of this six years ago. He's about to do it. So we were talking about what should he preach on first? What should be the first book he tackles that sets the tone for his ministry? How does he begin? And can you guess where he started and chose? Philippians. Here. He picked this book to begin his whole ministry there. Because this book is so joyful. And the Christian life and the work of ministry and life in the church is supposed to be characterized by joy. And as we'll keep repeating, not just this general, vaguely defined, happy, snappy, everything's all right joy. No, true joy, biblical joy, gospel-generated joy. This book that is all about Christ revolves entirely around him. Remember that central section in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, is then about the joy that results from knowing this Christ. The chapter 3, verse 8, we're getting there soon. The surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. To live is Christ, Paul says. Christ is the Christian life. It's, it's all about him. It starts with knowing about him, which leads to loving him and delighting him, which then leads to living for him and serving for him. And all of that leads to joy, gospel gladness, contentment, the conviction that all is well. We are glad in God because of the grace of God. To be joyful then is to be glad for his grace. So that was the sermon two times ago. Verse 1, remember the command. Rejoice in the Lord. In light of all that Christ has done for you, rejoice and rest in Him. Do that first by rehearsing the gospel. Do that by setting your mind on the things above. Rejoice by filling your mind with true doctrine because doctrine is for joy. Remember, you are what you think. Your belief determines your behavior. So what you think really, really matters. We're trying to make the case that true joy is found only in Jesus. So to know him rightly, you must first think rightly about him, which means that your doctrine, your theology really, really 
matters. Which also then means that second, verse 2, last sermon, you also rejoice by rejecting false doctrine. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for the mutilators of the flesh. Beware anyone who teaches you anything contrary to the gospel of grace. Especially anyone that teaches you that there is some work that you must add to Christ's work. That there is something left undone. That anything you can do contributes in any way to your salvation. Paul says any such teaching is a false gospel. And it will rob you of joy. Because it robs you of rest and the security that is found only in a Savior who pays it all, who does it all, who finishes it all. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Him and Him alone. And so you must know that and delight in that and then live in light of these wonderful truths about Christ and salvation to have joy and peace. So that then means that not only does true doctrine really matter, false doctrine really matters as well. Recognize it, reject it, so that you can rejoice. And that then brings us finally to verse 3. Rejoice in the Lord by resting in who you are in the Lord. Rejoice by resting in gospel identity. So here's Paul's argument in these pivotal first three Verses. Follow what he's doing. Verse 1, rejoice by thinking rightly about God. Verse 2, rejoice by rejecting wrong thinking about God. Verse 3, rejoice by thinking rightly about self. That's what we're looking at today. Think rightly about God. Reject wrong thinking about God. Think rightly about self. Christian, do you know who you are? Do you understand your identity in Christ? Our world is obsessed with identity right now. Politics has become less about questions of economy and ideology and more about questions of identity. But the great irony is that the more we unite politically around identity, the more we gather and pursue that particular self-interest without any regard for others. Well, what we're seeing is actually the more divided We are becoming. Instead of focusing on and promoting uh, identity as something to unite us together, the tendency now is the focusing on and promoting of identity as something that divides us apart. But there is an important truth at the heart of our culture's obsession with identity. You do need to know who you are. Identity is very important. So, again, Christian, do you know who you are? Do you know what the distinguishing character and characteristics are that make you, you? Paul's argument in this verse is that you rejoice by knowing who you are. The problem is, this day and age, we are really not very sure. We are very identity confused. Yes, even we as Christians, we so frequently forget who we are. And I want to make the case this morning that many of our struggles with joy result from a fundamental failure to remember and rejoice in our identity in Christ. The gospel is our fundamental identity marker. Christ is our fundamental identity marker. To live is Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So Paul's argument 
The main point of the sermon. Here you got it. You got it from the beginning. Here's what we're talking about. Find gospel joy in gospel identity. Which means that we need to know what that gospel identity is. Uh, Pete Townsend, lead singer for the appropriately titled The Who. Nobody, you guys, you're too young. <laughs> I'm young. Uh, he sang the song, Who Are You? Who, 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 who? I really want to know. Christian, who are you? Paul's going to tell you in this verse. Here is your gospel identity. Are you ready for this? Here's your identity. Here's what you know and have to rest in. Christian, you are the circumcision. Kind of strange, right? It's kind of not really particularly expected. But that's what Paul says in verse 3. So what in the world does that mean? What simply means that Christians are the people of God. So how do you know then if you are part of the people of God? What then do the people of God do? They worship by the Spirit of God. They glory in the Christ of God. And then they put no confidence in the flesh of man. So that's going to be our outline this morning. It's going to be very simple. Christians are the people of God. That is your gospel identity. That's who you are. What do you then do? Activity flows out of identity. Well, what is your gospel activity? Christians worship by the Spirit of God. Christians glory in the Christ of God. And Christians put no confidence in the flesh of man. And all of that leads to gospel joy. Gospel activity rooted in gospel identity results in gospel-generated joy. Right, so let's read the text and see where this is. I'll read the whole the first, first three verses again just to get it all in our minds. We're going to focus on verse 3. But I'll read Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. This is what God wants to say to you this morning. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. If you would bow with me, let's go to the Lord uh, in prayer. Father, help us now. Help me now be clear. Father, help your word be clear. Father, help us to understand the wonderful news of who we are in Christ Jesus. Father, teach us your ways. Teach us who you are. Teach us who you make us to be as your children. Father, we come into this room with such different experiences this week. Such different experiences in our lives. Father, some, income, some of us come into this room with great joy and gladness and great confidence and hope. Father, some of, us, some of us come into this room just sorrow, confusion, not really knowing what's going on or what we're feeling or what's happening or why. Father, I ask that you would minister your truth now to your people in these various different ways. Encourage the brokenhearted. Point them to the joy that can be found in knowing Christ. Father, challenge the arrogant, or the, the prideful, or the sinful. Point them to their need for Jesus Christ. Father, all of these things I cannot do, but you can do. So I ask and beg now that you would work by your spirit according to your word. Father, help us now. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
All right, so we've got to first sort out the beginning of this verse 3, because it sounds kind of strange. We are the circumcision. You ever think of yourself that way, right? We're the circumcision. All right. What in the world is Paul talking about? And why is he talking about circumcision at this point in his argument? What in the world does circumcision have to do with identity? Well, for the Jewish people 2,000 years ago, everything. Remember back two, two weeks ago, circumcision was the divinely given sign of the Abrahamic covenant. That doesn't make any sense to you? We'll come back in January. We're coming to Abraham soon. We're going to get to Genesis 12 when we finish Philippians. Abraham is so, so important. So we're going to look at this in great detail then. But circumcision, most simply, was the identity marker of the Old Testament people of God. It was the sign that, that marked them out and that set them apart from everyone else as God's special people. And that specific special sign might seem a little bit strange to us, but the idea itself of some sort of sign or identity marker is not that strange at all. Every person and every group has certain signs or markers that they use to identify themselves, who they are and to what group of people they belong and identify themselves with. Right? Clothes are the simple example, simplest example of this. I, I'm doing it right now. Uh, this week is week one of the college football season. Uh, yesterday, the good guys, my Tar Heels, beat the bad guys, the, the Gamecocks. It was the University of North Carolina versus the Unity of Se University of South Carolina. We are Carolina. We're first. They're the worst. Uh, they have to identify themselves in relationship to us. We're Carolina. They are South Carolina. But I love my university. Henry made some really provocative comment that only professional hockey mattered today in Sunday school, so I'm trying to correct that right now. Uh, my university really matters to me and my family. I'm the 20-something shores to go there. I applied nowhere else. My parents met there on the steps of Erring House, where I lived almost 30 years later. All three of my siblings went there. The first three of us all married spouses that went there until my little sister messed it all up. Uh, she married a Richmond spider. We still love him. He's a great guy, but we're trying to get him to do a graduate degree at Carolina so we can all 10 of us have gone there. Right? I'm just, the point, my family bleeds Carolina blue. So on big sports weekends, it's the fall, you're going to see this a lot. I wear my Carolina tie. This is our color. This is the old well. You can't see it from there. It's our, kind of our symbol. It's been there since the university opened in 1793. You drink from it on your first day of class. And the point of all that is to say I am identifying myself with my school. I wore a Carolina shirt every single day this week because it's the first week of football season. Now, you may not be as weird as I am. You may not care anything about sports. But you in some way do the same thing in how you dress or in how you act, what you do. You identify yourself as some sort of person that identifies and fits in with some sort of group. And that group is supposed to say something about who you are and what you value. Circumcision identified the Jews as the people of God. It was their identity marker. But look back again at verse 2. Look at the verse before the one we're looking at. 
Remember, Paul has just warned the Philippians. Remember the great shift of tone that happens in verse 2. Verse 1, rejoice. Verse 2, beware. Watch out. Look out. He's warning them, remember, about these Judaizers, false teachers, dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh, it says. Or remember, if you're looking at the NASB, it says the false circumcision. And this word is a wild word. We all, most of us speak English, so we're reading the Bible in English. But the Bible wasn't written in English, right? The Bible was written in Greek. You are reading in front of you a translation of that Greek. And Paul does some pretty punny stuff here with the Greek. The word at the beginning of verse 3 for circumcision is peritome, which is just the word pere, around, and tome, which means to cut. I don't need to explain that word. But at the end of verse 2, the word is kata, Tome, same root word to cut, but the prefix means repeatedly or excessively or thoroughly. Thus the translation cut into pieces or mutilation. Of these three descriptions in verse 2, this is by far the most cutting of them all. Did you catch that? Paul is saying that these guys, these Jewish Judaizers, think they're the circumcision. They think that they are the people of God, but he's saying, verse 3, they're actually not. They're the opposite. They're not the people of God at all. Remember, this circumcision was just supposed to be a sign of being part of the people of God. It was supposed to be an external sign pointing to an internal reality. It was a ritual that pictured what happened and needed to happen to the heart. And so what people really needed was Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, where God says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart so that you may love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. So don't miss. That's a really important verse. Don't miss, first of all, that God has to do it. So much preaching sounds like it's something that we have to do and God's just waiting for us to do it. No, God has to do it. He says, I have to circumcise your heart that purpose so that you may live, which means no circumcised heart, no God acting, no life, therefore only death. And Paul is picking up on that language. He's saying that we Christians are the ones who have had our hearts circumcised. We are the ones, Jew and Gentile together, who have put their faith and their hope in Jesus Christ, are the ones who have been made alive by God. And he talks about this more in Colossians chapter 2. If you want to look there, it's just to your right, like two or three pages. I didn't look at the page number. Just turn to your right. The next book is Colossians. Look at chapter 2. Look at verse 11 of Colossians 2. Paul says in verse 11, in him, in Christ, obviously, in him also you were circumcised. Wait, what? What does that mean? He tells us you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Skip to verse 13. I could preach for hours on this passage. We need more time. Verse 13, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Verse 14, how? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
Oh, those verses are so good. That's, that's the gospel in those verses. And notice that Paul connects it all to circumcision. When we say gospel, we mean good news. But that good news starts off with very bad news. You are dead. Or if you do not yet know Jesus Christ, you are dead. Spiritually dead. You are the walking dead. You have a dead heart. Separated from God. Cut off from the one you were created for. Cut off from the very source of life and goodness itself. The Bible tells us that we are all of us sinners. All of us rebels against God. And since he is the God of life, to reject him is to receive death. So he starts off by saying, hey, listen, you, you have a dead heart apart from Christ. What can you do about that? Well, Mike did a great job of explaining this last week. He says everyone else in the world is basically telling you the same thing. They're telling you to do something. And that's what the Judaizers were doing. They were teaching that, hey, there's this law, right, this ritual that you have to do it. And if you do it, you'll be saved. You'll be part of the people of God. You have to be circumcised. The Catholic Church is teaching you that you have to perform the sacraments and be a good person alongside uh, the grace of God. Islam is teaching you that you have to perform the five pillars and be a good person to earn life. Buddhism is teaching you that you have to follow the noble eightfold path and so be a good person to end suffering and achieve nirvana. All of them are boiled down to the same basic core principle. Here's the thing that you need to do to be saved, to be free, to, to know God, to be part of his people. Do this thing and be a good person and God will save you. These false teachers were saying to be part of the people of God, you must be circumcised. And Paul is practically screaming in verse 2, no, there is no life there. Rejoice, but wait a second, you will not be able to rejoice if you listen to these guys in verse 2. Because that's not how it works. It's not about the flesh. It's about the heart. It's not something you can do. It's something God has done in Jesus Christ. Remember verse 8. Here's what Paul wants. Uh, Philippians chapter 3. Here's what I want for you above all else. For you to know the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. Because he is life. Because bad news, you were dead. Good news, you can be made alive in him. And Paul told us there in Colossians 2 how he said it was the cross. The cross is everything. You sinned and you know you did. You know you're not a good person. Man, I'm not a good person. Thank God that Christ is. We sinned. We owe death for our sin. The penalty must be paid. The crime must be punished. And that's why Christ comes. He came to take our death and in taking our place, he takes the penalty for our sin and he gives us his life. The gospel is not about being a good person. It's about recognizing that you are not a good person. It's about Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5. It's about recognizing your spiritual bankruptcy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And then coming to Christ and trusting him to forgive you for your sins. That's what it means to be the circumcision. It most simply means... To be of the people of God. It means to be a child of God. And obviously, if you are to be a child of God, you have to be born of God. John 3, you have to be born again. 
That's what the circumcision of the heart is. It is to be born again. We were dead. God makes us alive in Christ all by grace. It's a gift. He does it for us. He gives that gift to us through the gift of faith, our trust, and our belief in Him. And what that does is it makes us His. Christian, that's your identity. And don't forget our context. All this is in the context of verse 1. Rejoice. So he's saying, Christian, to rejoice, you have to know who you are in Christ. Brothers and sisters, do you know and delight in the fact that you are part of the people of God? There is no higher privilege in the world. There is no better and more blessed group to be in. There is no more important and privileged identity than this. How tragic, then, that we so frequently minimize this or even forget this and so obsess over and celebrate all sorts of other identity markers. How dare the people of God fight and divide over secondary differences with Christians when we have this one great sameness? This is who you are. This must be the thing that distinguishes you and delights you. What is it that you parade most about your identity, right? What is it that you celebrate? What is it that you most value, uh, that you most want people to know about you? Is it that you are part of the people of God? Or do you love and find more affinity with those who are like you in every other way but this one? Those who are maybe ethnically or economically like you. Those who are similar to you. Or do you love and find more affinity with those who are unlike you in every way but this? What's the fundamental identity in which you most delight and identify yourself? That's what's so beautiful about Woodside. That's what I love about Woodside. We are, most of us, nothing alike except Except for the main and most important thing. Except for Christ. He takes a bunch of different weirdos like us. He gives you a weird, strange pastor like me. And then he unites us together into a family. Into God's family. That's beautiful. That's really neat. That's who we are. That must be our fundamental identity marker. Do you most delight in and identify yourself as part of the people of God? Which again is the family of God. We're so inoculated to this, but it's so important that we get it. Where the disciples come to Jesus and say, Jesus, teach us to pray. And he says, this would have been new. This would have been different. He says, pray like this, our Father. God the maker, the sovereign, the king, the lord, the master, becomes to us our father. Which means that you're not just part of the people of God. To be part of the people of God is to be part of the family of God. It is to have God as father, which then makes you his son or daughter. That's who you are. That's your fundamental identity. You are the circumcision. You are the people of God. You are a child of God. And that fact should give you so much confidence and so much security. 
You have a heavenly Father. We don't have to go through all the countless studies that demonstrate how difficult and devastating and disadvantageous it is for children to grow up without a father. Everyone recognizes how important a father is. Hey, it's no different spiritually. You have a perfect father, a heavenly father who will not let you go, who cannot let you down, who does not make mistakes, who pours abundantly his love on his people and cares for them and shepherds them and guides them and does every single thing he does for their good. Guys, having such a confidence and security in him, in this insecure life, is such a gift. It could be such a source of gladness, which is joy. Everything around us is constantly fluxing and changing. Sometimes it seems like everything is against you. But if we could step back and see this from the perspective of eternity, again, easier said than done. But if all this is true, who cares? Because God is for you. And he never changes. And in Christ, our standing with God never changes. Because Christ never changes. Christian, learn to rest and rejoice in your gospel identity. Hey, yes, that person at work is against you. God is for you. Yes, that person rejected you and abandoned you. God has accepted you and rescued you. Yes, your present may not be going exactly as you had imagined. God has promised that your future will go infinitely better than you can imagine. Know Christ and know who you are in him. Joy comes from knowing our gospel identity and then living out of our gospel identity, which is the gospel activity, right? Gospel identity, who we are, then demonstrates itself in gospel activity, what we do. And Paul gives us two slash three here in the rest of the verse. How can you know this is you? How can you know you are a child of God? Look at the three identifying marks that Paul gives. These will be much quicker. These are going to transition us to next week. First one, point number two. The people of God worship by the Spirit of God. What's that immediately remind you of? It's John 4, 24. It sounds like John 4, 24, doesn't it? John 4.24 uses a very, very common word for worship. The one that the New Testament most often uses for worship. Two weeks ago, Mike's, uh, Murray, we have to specify Mike's now. Murray and Moultrie. They're both M's, too. It's confusing. Uh, Murray was asking me, hey, are we going to do 4.24 when we get to this part? Are we going to talk about John 4.24? And I said, yes, absolutely. John 4.24, God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So, yeah, definitely, that's... That's the verse. But then I started studying it this week. Then I finally read and looked at uh, the Greek and saw that it's actually two different words in the Greek, both translated worship. They both do mean worship, but they have a different focus. Right? John 4.24 uses the most common word, which means to, to bow down, to, to prostrate yourself 
before another, like before a king. It's how an inferior responds in the presence of a superior. It's an act of respect, an act of adoration or awe. You bow down and you worship. So Jesus says in John 4 that worship is in spirit and in truth. But what does that mean? Well, it doesn't need to be that complicated. He says God is spirit, therefore he must be worshipped in spirit. And his main point is that true worship is not a matter of geographical location. The argument between the Samaritans and the Jews, do we worship on this mountain or on this mountain? Jesus is saying it's, it's not a matter of place or space. There is no such thing as sacred space. There is no holy land. It's just land. Worship is not about physical posture. It's not about following a particular liturgy. It's not about outward external rituals. He's saying it's internal. It's a matter of the heart. He is spirit, and so we must worship him in spirit. So always be very cautious about worship that seems very focused and adorned with very impressive externals. And not just high liturgy, like giant cathedrals and robes and smoke and statues and crosses, but even in the lowest of liturgy, with smoke from fog machines and, and flashing lights and loud music and the lights darkened and videos and movie clips. And anything that is obsessed with and revolving around that which ex- is external has somewhat missed the point of John 4, 24, that worship is in spirit. But again, that's not the word Paul uses in Philippians 3.3. He uses another word for worship, which more specifically relates to service in the temple. So this word, most of the time, when it's translated, it's translated as service. And I think that's probably more what Paul means here. Worship is two things. It is a specific activity. We are gathered here for worship. We worship publicly through song, through prayer, through the preaching of the word. We worship privately through prayer and the reading of the word. That worship is a specific activity that we direct towards God. We worship him. But scripture is also clear that worship is also an entire way of life. And I think that's actually more what Paul is referencing here. Because he uses the same word here that he uses in Romans 12, 1. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, uh, which is your spiritual worship. Or, as the King James says, which is your reasonable service. That's our word. Christians are those who worship or serve by the Spirit of God, meaning not just Christians are those who gather for one hour a week on Sunday mornings at 11 to sing some songs. But no, Christians are those who live our entire lives now in reference to Him. We worship Him and we serve Him not just in this building for an hour, creeping on two hours once a week, but in our entire lives, wherever we are, 168 hours a week. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. My church time, my work time, my family time, my sleep time, my leisure time, all of that is ultimately about him and for him. 
We want to be clear. We're trying to emphasize that this whole Jesus thing is not just some add-on to your current life. We're trying to make the case that he is life. And he either is life for you or he is nothing for you. We don't add him to kind of our current pantheon of gods just in case he's the right one. We don't just pray and confess some faith in Jesus so that we don't have to go to hell. No one wants to go to hell. The question is, do you love Jesus? Do you delight in Jesus? Has he gotten a hold of you? Has he changed you? Is your life different now that Jesus has come into it? The people of God rejoice to worship God and to structure their entire lives around him and around his people. You will find joy in worship, in a life lived to the glory of God, because that's what you were made for. And living in accordance with your design makes everything better. It's like the classic line. I remember when the last time I used this, I used it a lot. I think it's been a while. It's like the classic line from Chariots of Fire. And man, if you haven't seen Chariots of Fire, you just got to watch it. Uh, it's about Eric Little, a Scottish missionary who would go on to die in a Chinese prison camp, but who also so happened to be the fastest man in the world in 1924. But as he's training for the Olympics and not in China doing missions, his sister kind of challenges his him. Challenges him on that. Like, hey, you know, missions, this is kind of more important than running. What are you doing? And this is, how, this is his famous reply from the movie. It's so good. Uh, Little says to his sister, he says, I believe that God made me for a purpose for China. That's his purpose. God made me for a purpose for China. But he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's so good. God designed Eric Little in a certain way and for a certain purpose. And it brought both Little and God great delight when Little lived and worked and operated according to that design. He could run the Olympics and win a gold medal and that be worship all to the glory of God because God made him fast. You will find joy in living in accordance with your design. Ultimately, that design is to live for the glory of God and to worship with your whole person and your whole life by the Spirit of God. That goes off when everything goes off, when we forget that focus and that orientation to him. Remember, sin is when we curve in on ourselves and then we then start to live for ourselves as if we were our fundamental purpose and identity. If it was all about us and then all of a sudden we're miserable and we can't figure out and understand why. It's because we've forgotten who we are, who we are, and what we are for. You are made to worship and serve and live for him. Next one. Look at point three. We're going to actually want to do these last two together because they're saying the same thing. One positively and one negatively. And this is what we're going to talk about all next week. I'm really excited about next week. The upcoming verses are so so good. They are the very heart of the gospel. I almost even, don't even want to get into it today. I just want to leave you hanging, but I'm going to tease it. Um, we're going to get the basic idea so we don't have to be long, but you got to come back next week. Don't miss that next week. Not because what I'll have to say is so good, but because what Paul has to say is so good. And it's his extended explanation of these final two points. Christians glory in the Christ of God and put no confidence in the flesh 
of man. Now, how are those basically the same point? Look first there at the word glory. The Greek word for glory is doxa, something that has glory, has intrinsic value. It is of great worth. It is thus worthy of worship or praise. That's glory, the, the noun. This is not that word. This is a verb. If you're reading the King James, you'll notice that it says rejoicing in Christ Jesus. But again, it's not our word Cairo, which we're becoming so familiar with. Both translations are accurate. They convey a sense of what the word means. But I think that for once, the NIV actually does the best job. The NIV says that Christians are those who boast in Christ Jesus. That's what the word means. And this is one of Paul's favorite words. I think it's like 37 times it's used in the New Testament. Paul uses it 35 times. Over and over and over again. Especially in 1st and 2nd Corinthians. 1st Corinthians 1.31 Let the one who boasts Same word. Boast in the Lord. Galatians 6.14 But far be it from me to boast. Same word. Except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what it means to glory in Christ. It is to boast. I was going to try to sing it, but then I can't, I can't remember the tune. We just sang it. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. That's what we just sang. That's what Paul means in this verse. That's what it means to glory in Christ. It is to boast in Christ. Or how about Ephesians 2 verse 9. Verse 8 first. Here's the gospel again. Here's what sets Christianity apart from everything else. For by grace you have been saved through faith. I don't know how he missed this. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. All of it. From beginning to end. It's his gift. Verse 9. Not a result of works. Not a result of what you do. Why not? So that no one may boast. Same word. To boast in something is to declare how great it is in our estimation. And then thus how much we rejoice in it. How much we rest in it. How much we depend on it. I mentioned earlier that we won our football game uh, last week. But the first three quarters were really, really bad. So I was frustrated and I paused it and I wasn't going to waste any more time. And I was going to go upstairs and do this and work on my sermon instead of watching football. And then I could come back and fast forward uh, to the end. So at halftime, I wrote this. I arrogantly boasted in my Tar Heels, but we lost. We ended up winning. Um, but we lost. I so gloried in them and rejoiced in them that I depended on them. I trusted them. I had great confidence in them. Now then they went and ruined it and won. Um, so that was great. Um, but the point still stands. We're not a good football team. We will lose. I cannot myself get, let myself get too excited. I cannot put much confidence in them. And that's how these two points basically mean the same thing. One Greek dictionary says that the word boast figuratively means living with God-given confidence. So notice what Paul is saying. This is what we're going to come back to next week. Christians are those who boast in Christ and do not boast in the flesh, or do not boast in self. 
Christians boast in Christ, not in self. They glory in Christ, not in self. They trust in Christ, not in self. They put full confidence in Christ and thus then no confidence in self. That's what a Christian does because of who a Christian is and then what a Christian knows about that self. That apart from the grace of God, self is sinful, selfish, hopeless, and helpless. Christians are those who are poor in spirit, who recognize their spiritual bankruptcy, that I have nothing to offer. I have nothing to bring to the bargaining table. I have nothing good. No one is righteous. No, not one. That includes me, and that includes you. And as the grace of God, opens our eyes to see our true spiritual condition apart from him, he also then graciously opens our eyes to see that there's nothing in us worth trusting, worth putting our confidence in, worth boasting in. There is nothing inside us on which we can base any hope in our salvation. That would be like taking all of your savings and all of your money and everything that you had and placing it on the University of North Carolina Tar Heels to win the national championship in football. You should have no confidence in that. You will lose everything. And if you put confidence in yourself, if you place that ultimate value on yourself, you will lose everything. There is nothing inside of us upon which we can depend. But there is something outside of us. There is no hope in self, but there is hope in someone else. Christians glory in Jesus Christ. They boast in him. That's what faith is. That's why it's so important that we understand that salvation is only by grace through faith. Forgiveness, life, next week, righteousness, rightness, and right with Godness given to us entirely as a gift that we receive by humbly believing and resting in him. No hope in self, total hope in Christ. That's what a Christian does. And Christian, that's where you're going to find joy. Our struggle with joy, even as Christians, is when we forget. Right? The grace gets us in and we think there must be something left. There must be something dependent upon me. And then we collapse under the weight and the burden that we were never supposed to carry. You will find joy in finding your identity only in the one who both created you and redeemed you who loved you and gave himself up for you, who came down here so that you could go up there, who took your brokenness so that you could have his wholeness, who took your sin so that you could have his righteousness, who took your death so that you could have his life. Paul is saying that's where joy is to be found. That is how the gospel generates joy. Gladness in Jesus. Gladness for his grace. He says, Christian, know who you are. Rest in who you are. Rejoice in who you are in Christ. You are part of the people of God. You are a child, a son, a daughter of the living God. And as a result, you have the great privilege now of knowing him and worshiping him and living for him 
and boasting in him because you have now learned that there is no hope boasting in self. So rejoice by knowing the Lord and then rejoice by knowing who you are in him. If you would, bow with me and let's close with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace. Father, we thank you for your word. Father, your word is so much better than my words. Father, use your word now to do your work. Father, use your word to teach us, to train us, to correct us, to rebuke us, to encourage us and strengthen us. Father, use it ultimately to point us away from ourselves and to point us to Jesus Christ. Father, I am so thankful that you speak to us through your word. I am so thankful for the great privilege that it is to stand here before these people and proclaim your word. Father, help me. Father, now do the work that really matters. Father, do your work by your spirit on our hearts. Father, make us those who boast in Jesus Christ. I ask and I pray this in his name. Amen.